there's something fundamentally funny about eating together, about the practice of socially eating food. You're at your most vulnerable in some kind of ways, doing this everyday necessary act, but in the presence of other people. It's why we have comedies of manners and the fear of faux pas. Dinner parties are inherently nerve-wracking social occasions. Even the extroverts among us, I think, would have to grant that there can be something anxiety-producing about the conversations, exchanges, relationships at play. When do I use which fork? Is it work my way in or the other way around? There's something disconcerting. How do I behave? I remember just before I got married, in the days leading up to my wedding, my father and older brother took me out to this fancy steakhouse in downtown Vancouver a place the likes of which I had never before been to. And I was so deeply uncomfortable, so nervous about making a mistake. I was about to get married, but I was more intimidated by a waiter in a white coat. And it wasn't until my brother in this wonderfully avuncular moment leaned across the table and said, Peter, they just want our money, same as everybody else, (laughs) that I began to relax. I was nervous. How do I behave? If you were here last week, you know that our gospel reading ended with a meal, this great banquet, this dinner party. And the story of the prodigal son, the story that some people refer to as the gospel in the gospel, as a sign of God's lavish, extravagant, and costly love. Jesus described this great feast offered in celebration that this prodigal who was lost had now been found, who was dead, was now alive. It's this meal as a celebration of God's love and grace. This message, the truth of God's love, is at the core of Jesus' life and teaching. He announces, he embodies the lavish love of God and often in the meals he shares. Of course, the story ended just as the meal and party were getting underway. So perhaps that leaves us with the question of how does one behave at such a feast, such a party? What's the proper etiquette at this meal of lavish love? How does one respond to a feast of grace? Our reading today from the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, also includes, you'll notice, a meal, a banquet of sorts. And this meal, too, is connected with lavish love and abundant power also. This meal flows is occasioned by this remarkable display by Jesus in just the chapter before, John chapter 11. The story, of course, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a story of love. We see Jesus' deep compassion, his loving commitment to Lazarus. It's one of only a few times in the Gospels that Jesus' emotions are recorded, his physical response, he weeps. We see, too, his abundant power as he calls forth Lazarus from out of death. Lazarus, come out. And he does in this astounding display. How will those around Jesus respond? There it goes. (laughs) I'm going to try to time the points to be especially dramatic. (laughs) How will we? Boom. How will we respond? You see, the reality that Jesus teaches, that he himself embodies in his meals, in these displays of power and love, invite a response, a reaction. 
news this scandalous, this good, this transformative, invites a response. You might say you and I are invited in Christ to a feast of grace. How might we respond? Our gospel reading this morning depicts several reactions, several responses embodied in the characters named around Jesus. What I'd like to do this morning is simply consider these responses as a lens for understanding our own postures before Christ, before the gospel, inviting us to respond rightly and truly, perhaps a little more or for the very first time. Before we dive in, let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your grace, the gift of your love. We praise you that you are a hospitable God who wins and woos us to yourself, who invites us to yourself. And I pray this day as we look at the gospel of John, at these words written long ago by your Holy Spirit, working through John, that that same spirit would enliven our hearts, empower us to respond truly and rightly. In your name we pray. Amen. Three of the main characters in our story today are related. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. These two sisters and brother are identified often as the Bethany family for the place that they lived. And they're depicted in the Gospels as being in the orbit of Jesus, his followers. And each of them responds, you'll notice, acts, plays a role in some different way from one another but I'd suggest they're unified in a particular stance toward Christ. Lazarus, the brother who's been raised, reclines. He rests. John describes him as reclining at the table. This would have been the custom for someone partaking of the meal. It's pretty good work if you can find it. You recline and you eat. There are certainly gender expectations at play here, but Lazarus was just dead, so we'll cut him some slack, perhaps. (laughs) Some commentators have suggested even that this dinner, this meal, would have been Lazarus' funeral banquet already planned, but then reappropriated with this surprising turn of events. And rest in its own way is a wholly appropriate response to the lavish love, the abundant power we see in Jesus. Imagine, if you are able, what Lazarus has just experienced and now knows. Like no other human being, it seems to me, Lazarus, at this meal, would have been able to enter in to the reality of what we will celebrate at Easter. The man was dead and is no longer so. The fear of death, that animating force in so much of our lives, so much of our actions, would be drastically different for him. He's already tasted the fullness of it, tasted it and seen that there's a power greater, more. The drive for immortality, the drive to make himself secure, the drive to build a legacy, to show himself worthwhile. These all, it seems to me, would have been diminished, radically so. In a profound way, out of the truth that he knows, Lazarus is at rest Make no mistake, Lazarus will still go on to die. Just following our reading, John describes how the opponents of Jesus were seeking now to kill Lazarus. Lazarus had become this walking and talking display of Jesus' power and abundant love, such that people we read in, later on in John 12 were coming to trust in Jesus 
because of Lazarus, simply because the, the fact that he was alive, he once was dead, but now was alive. So the opponents of Jesus were seeking to kill Lazarus, we read. He can die, but death is different for him. It's changed. He's at rest. In the poem Time by George Herbert, the poet directly addresses death, proclaiming, you once were executioner, but at Christ's coming, you are a gardener now and more an usher to convey our souls. You once were an executioner to be feared. You're now a gardener. Death exists. It's still the experience of those who are made of dust. We shall return to it but it's different, it's diminished. Because it is diminished, we, like Lazarus, can be at rest. At rest in a profound way. At rest with Jesus, at table with him. This idea that an appropriate response to the lavish love of Jesus is rest and reclining is perhaps counterintuitive. For many of us, we understand our response, the needed response to the goodness of God to be one of action and activity first and foremost. The belief has bewitched us. The belief that we are perhaps prodigals who have returned unworthy. That's true. So then we must now walk on eggshells with the right amount of effort, activity, and productivity. That part is false. Having entered in by lavish love and grace, we now react, we respond out of the belief that the right actions, the right activities might secure our place. But Lazarus, having known of Jesus' loving commitment to him, his abundant power, his defeat of death, is at rest. He's the only character in the Gospel of John who is named as one through whom people are coming to trust in Jesus. And he does nothing in the story. The promise of Jesus' life, what he teaches, what he shows us, means that we can be at rest too. This Lent, many of us have been following along with the devotional material, American Lent. It's this series of reflections, invitations to reflect upon, to repent around this nation's legacy of ongoing racism. It's strong and sobering stuff, challenging us uh, to wade into uncomfortable and complex places. One of the elements I have most appreciated about each day's reflection is that it begins with this moment of pause, of prayer and silence. Each day's reflection begins with words, with a prayer reminding us of God's presence, his life-giving, gracious presence, and an invitation to still ourselves, to center ourselves in this reality. It's a reminder that as we wade into these complex, challenging, discomforting waters, we do so from the context of God's grace, his abundant power, his lavish love. It's a reminder we don't come as saviors, but we enter in knowing the Savior. We enter in from a place of rest. The first action is rest. The first response to the lavish love of God is to find rest in it. Of course, there is work to be done too. 
American Lent certainly reminds us of this as there's calls to pray and to action and questions. And we see the appropriateness of this response in the character of Martha. Martha is the older sister in the family of Bethany. In our reading, Martha is quickly described, quickly mentioned, she's serving. She's playing a role in the pulling off of this communal meal, this abundant banquet. You can imagine her here preparing various dishes, waiting on those at the table, ensuring that those there are able to celebrate, equipped to taste of the grace and goodness of the meal. This is very good work. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, Martha must be reminded that it's not all about service. But service is an appropriate response to the grace and goodness of God. From a place of rest, from that non-anxious place, confident in God's love, we can move forward in service. Martha's work here is properly understood, I think, as the work of allowing others to partake of the feast of God's grace. This, too, is a way of partaking of the meal. The danger, of course, exists that we make it all about our own work, our own action, forgetting the occasion of the meal, the context of our service. But service is still good, that others might know, receive of God's abundant banquet. In Matthew 22, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom he announces and ushers in, to this great feast. And he describes servants sent far and wide to invite those into it, to enjoy the feast. The feast of God has servers and servants. There are things to do in the abundance of God's kingdom. And some of you are very relieved by that. I think all that reclining and rest, like what are we going to do? There is good work to be done. The work of serving others as Christ has served us, service to be done that others might enjoy the gifts of God. Many of you will know Paul Van Allen, a deacon, a servant in our church. Paul's not here today, but I'm going to take a moment to brag on him a little. As Church of the Cross was being formed a little over three years ago, Paul was on the team, along with myself and a few others, that was looking for space in Northeast Austin that we might rent, that we might use as home for the church. Nobody on the team even knew the Phillips Event Center existed. We actually found it almost by accident. Paul and I were out looking, driving around, knocking on doors, cold calling, looking for a place. The hour of the launch was coming up and we were getting a little more desperate. And we were looking at a hotel on the I-35 frontage road. We went into the back office and we're talking with them and it looked promising. They seemed interested and keen. We weren't sure. We had questions on our end about using their ballroom, but they were keen on it. They were like, oh, this would sound really good. Until they found out that as a church, we worshiped at Sunday morning and we worshiped with music. And they were like, we have hotel guests. We think that's going to be disruptive. We're really sorry, but we don't think that's going to work. Just as a policy, we think having a band here that like the early hours of 10 a.m., I know it feels early to many of us, 10 a.m. on a Sunday, that's going to be disruptive. And so we're like, oh, okay, that's too bad. And I was already on to the next thing, halfway out the door. But the woman who had been working with us said almost under her breath, gee, I feel like I'm saying no to God right now. <laughs> and Paul, thoughtful, joyful servant of Jesus that he is, before we were out the door, had spun around to implore this woman, you are not saying no to God, but God is saying yes to you. There is a feast of grace 
and you are invited. That woman turned out to be the woman who told us about the Phillips Event Center. We wouldn't have known it but for that ensuing conversation. Paul was attentiveness, attentive to the act of service, of inviting others to the feast of grace. This is the response in word and deed, inviting others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Inviting others into this feast of lavish love and goodness that Jesus makes possible. Last week, as I was preparing for the sermon on the prodigal son, this doesn't happen regularly, but I had a really profound sense of the passage for me, good news for me. A sense of God's love for me, regardless of my own sin and failures, my own unworthiness. It was wonderful. And I was prepping at Cherrywood Coffee House over on 38th, and it was crowded with people watching NCAA basketball, just enjoying their meals. And as this sense of God's love for me like, came resting on me, I had this equal sense that everyone here needs to know this news, needs to know this truth. Everyone needs to know the lavish love of God, the abundant grace and power of Jesus. This is the logic of God's grace for us. It results in a response, a, a participation, a desire to serve that others might be drawn in. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote that the coming of Christ, God's taking up of our flesh, him demonstrating his grace and goodness, must overflow in us into concern for and commitment to the life of the world, into service and action in the name of Christ. Actions of concern and commitment centered upon Jesus. I think we see something of this relationship, actions of justice, of concern and commitment to the world, centered on Christ. In Jesus' words in verse 8, his rebuke of Judas, you will always have the poor with me. With You will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. These words are not to be understood as denying the place of actions of care, of solidarity with service to the poor. Rather, they suggest the preeminence of Jesus even in this good work. A reminder that the center of God's kingdom, where bread can be bought without price and justice rolls down like streams, the center is Jesus. In his response to Judas, Jesus quotes from the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy 15. We have two verses from it on the front of your service sheet. And Deuteronomy 15 is intriguing because it has these two dueling claims made about the poor. You will not have any poor among you. You will always have the poor in the land. These two contrasting, seemingly contradictory statements very close to one another. In these seemingly contradictory statements, of course, lies the difference between what ought to be and what actually is. In between them lies the chasm between what we are called to and what our anxious, striving, grasping, ill-at-rest hearts allow us to do. In the abundance of God's creation and all that he has given humanity, there are the poor because of the inward and selfish bent of the human heart. It's into this chasm that Jesus has come. This festive meal takes place in the shadow of the cross six days before Passover. It's into this chasm, this brokenness, this inward bend of our heart 
that Jesus has given his life by his death upon the cross at Passover, by his resurrection, by this giving of his spirit, he has stepped in and made for us, made for himself a new people with new hearts, made for us new hearts. He's done what the law could not do, and he has given us new life, new hearts. This is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. He alone is, un, is able to bind our unruly hearts and wills to make us something new. In Christ, God creates new people with new hearts, hearts to serve and to give, where previously they could only grasp and withhold. There's this contemporary worship song I've been listening to called Resurrection. And time and again, the refrain in it is sung, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. This is the truth that Lazarus rests in. And this is the truth that causes Martha, I'd suggest you, to serve. The sense that she is being made new and participating in the making new of others. In contrast to the response of Judas, who stands off cynical, compromised, condemning even, in our reading this morning, we have Mary, the final member of Bethany, the Bethany family, where Judas stands to the side, Mary stands out, central in this story as a picture of adoration, devotion to Jesus, where Judas is resistant in some way to the grace and way of Jesus, Mary does not hold back. She's extravagant and over the top. The perfume she uses would have come from India, far to the east, and would have been worth about the yearly wages of a day laborer. There's something lavish, profligate in her response. It's scandalous. It's seemingly imprudent in its worship, in its generosity toward God. Both Lazarus and Martha occupy kind of predictable roles, culturally expected roles. But Mary's response is out of order. It's lavish. Even as it's a picture of humility, she is undone in her devotion to Jesus. It's precisely in this undoneness, in its extravagance, that Mary's response is so challenging, isn't it? It's a picture of complete abandonment, of vulnerability. There's a respectability and safety to hedging one's bets. There's a safety in standing to the side, in waiting how it will all play out. We'd say it's the wisdom of moderation. But Mary here is exposed to Jesus, to those around him. She's wholly abandoned. Such is her conviction of his goodness, his love, and his power she is convinced that Jesus is wholly trustworthy and worthy of all that she is. And Jesus does not disappoint. Leave her alone is his response. That same voice that called for Lazarus from the grave stills the voice of cynicism, of compromise, of condemnation. The same voice that is that of the Lord of life protects her, speaks over her. So he can for you and I today. He does not disappoint today. Jesus is worthy of our trust, worthy of your best. In him, nothing will be wasted. In him, you will not go wrong. 
this singular conviction and the devotion that arises from it, it seems to me is what unifies the responses of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Rest in and service to Jesus are, are both these appropriate responses of devotion. In a few moments, we will come to this table a remembrance, a symbol of the feast of grace that is available to us in Jesus. And perhaps we come weary of striving, weary of working, of that feeling of having to earn our place, of being productive, needing to be so. Perhaps then for us, the response as we come is one of receiving rest, of being stilled in God's power, in his goodness, his loving commitment toward us. Perhaps, though, we come eager for purpose, hungry for some direction, some sense of the next steps of how we're called to participate. We, too, can come expectantly, can come to the feast of grace, ready to receive good work and the power to do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever space we come out of to this table, whatever our lives hold for us that we step out of to come to the feast of grace, we can come with confidence that he does not disappoint and that he is wholly trustworthy with all that we have, with all that we are. We do not have to hold back. In his presence, you can be undone. You can be made vulnerable because you can be confident in him and that in him you are being made new. The resurrected king is resurrecting you and me and invites us to his table. Let us come to him. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we are hungry, O oh Lord, in ways that we recognize and maybe can't even articulate, we hunger and thirst. We long for what only you can provide. For new hearts, for rest, for good work. For one who can speak a living word, a life-giving word over us. Wherever it is that we're coming from, from our various weeks and lives, would we this day be stirred up by your Holy Spirit in the conviction that, that you have what we need? And would we be built up in confidence, O oh Lord, that we can come to you, trusting in you, and that you will not disappoint? Would you today, even in some small way, satisfy the longings, the hunger of every heart here, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen.